Welcome to the River D Centre podcast. Listen back to the Sunday worship message recorded live in our church building in Flint, North Wales. the powerful subwoofer as it's vibrated my iPad off it and flat on the floor. Thank you to whoever picked it up. Um, turn to the person next to you and say you're only here so you don't have to put the heating on. Because powerful church, we're all thinking about power. and But of course we're all fed up and looking at the smart meter if you've got one, aren't you? Thinking, yes, it's under a tenner for the day. And then Louisa goes and puts the tumble dryer on and that's it, that gone out the window. That's not my chosen anecdote for today, okay? Um, Because there's loads, when you're thinking about power, uh, loads of anecdotes. Maybe the political power that we see in in 10 Downing Street nowadays or not. Um, Maybe about the collective bargaining power of the trade unions. It's an interesting one in current current climate. Um, Apparently teachers are re-balloting for their strike votes because the uh, postmen were on strike and they didn't get their ballot paper, so... Can't make that up, can you? Uh, And obviously, we've got to think about the power of advertising. Have you ever bought a kitchen gadget that then stayed in the cupboard and didn't move again because you thought you needed it? There's the power that advertising can have over us. I went with none of them. Instead, I went with one of my kind of hobbies, kind of interests, and we're going to go with horsepower. Okay? Stay with me. Louisa shouts at me every time I talk about cars as we drive along. Ooh, interesting car. Even yesterday, actually, I wrote this down the other day. I thought, I even point out to the kids an interesting car. Like, ooh, kids, look at this car. I wrote that, and then yesterday, no, Friday, I went, ooh, kids, a 1998 Mondeo. Interesting. (laughs) They're not bothered about those cars, because, I mean, it's just my childhood, isn't it? That's what I'm seeing. They're like, it's just an old, rusty car. But it's interesting to me. And the horsepower is the conversation that comes around in every car-related conversation, okay? It's what Jeremy Clarkson's famous for, isn't it? Going, power! Um, And that's kind of what we've got to think about. I drive a rubbish car that's only got 110 horsepower. It can do 300 if you spend a lot of money on it. But here's the thing, right? How do you know what power a car makes? Forget what the manufacturer says. How do you know? Anyone know how it's tested? Well, you could do that. It won't tell you very much, but yes, you could put your foot down. But there's a thing called a dyno, where it's a rolling road. The car gets put on this rolling road, and it kind of accelerates, and they plug it into computers and that whatnot. Uh, and let's watch a quick video, Zach, Zach number one, if that's all right, of a car on a rolling road. Hang on, the first few seconds are blank. We've got any sound in there as well. There we go. So we've got a Ferrari sat on a dyno. There you go. And you just put your foot down. It goes nowhere. And I think it's quite amazing that a car can go well over 100 miles an hour, but sat still. There you go. And you always see people on YouTube jumping and cheering because their car's made over 1,000 horsepower or that kind of thing. Um, so that's, that's what it's called. It's strapped down, doesn't go anywhere. There's something to do with the friction in the 
rollers underneath and the car's ability to kind of push the, that round is what makes it go fast. But sometimes it can go very, very wrong. And if you type in Dino Fails on YouTube, you get a whole compilation. Zach, let's go with video number two. Here we go. This one's going. It's a bit different, this Dino. Oh, it's doing well. Mitsubishi Evo 8. There's a 7. Oh, oh. Crikey. Oh, dear. Right, Jane, it is a bit dangerous. So in that second video, they had all the power, and that's the same car that James May crashed in the latest uh, Grand Tour as well, so it's known for being crashed, that car. But they, all the modifications were there under the bonnet of that car, weren't they? And they wanted to see how much power it could make. And basically, they weren't prepared for that power to be unleashed, for it to kind of all happen. If you got a slower car on there, maybe that wouldn't have happened. They just got excited and wanted to get it on the dyno and see how much power it had. The power was there, but they weren't prepared for it. Now, before I kind of go down the road of um, analogizing the car and, you know, God's the engine, um, the the body of the car is the church and we're the passengers we'll get into so many holes if we do that but i spent a while thinking about who or what is powerful okay we we don't have god's power in ourselves because we aren't god but in some ways we can pave the way for god's power can't we we have the power to love we have the power to be compassionate we have the power to encourage and the power to inspire. And they're things that we can do, but that's not unique to us as Christians. So that's the first thing we've got to kind of think about here is that we've been made by God just like every other human being in this, on this entire planet. We are made in the image of God. But what makes us different when we come to know and believe in God? What makes the power of us, the power of the church, any different? We're going to turn to scripture because, um, and it's going to be 1 Kings and chapter 18. Um, you've always got to go to Old Testament when you're thinking about God's power in some kind of physical sense. Uh, and the first image that came to me is of Elijah. Okay, when, uh, the story of Elijah. So 1 Kings chapter 18, and it'll be from verse 16 if you're following along. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. That sentence was so out of context, but never mind. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You know, it's bad when it's Jezebel, don't you? So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls, bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, 
let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare, prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, and since there are so many of you, call on your name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer as they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be wakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered, and no one paid attention. And we're going to pause there, and we're going to go through the rest of that uh, scripture later. We've got this first altar that's being built, haven't we? Built in worship of God, of a God called Baal, lowercase g on God. The context is, and it's really important, it, at this time... The Israelites had settled in Canaan. And Baal was obviously a, a false god that in Canaanite law was ruler of heaven as well as the god of sun, rain, thunder, fertility, and agriculture. And as the Israelites kind of had settled there in Canaan, and you can imagine how this happens, it, it'd be dead easy to kind of fall into the same interests as the local people to kind of get an interest in that local folklore. So at this point, Elijah enters the fray where the Israelites have turned to another god. They forget about the Lord their god and worshipped other gods. So right now, this is an obvious way to go, but think about what other gods, in inverted commas, might you turn to. And I don't want to take you down some kind of guilt trip of, uh, you know, thinking about the sinful stuff. Because sometimes it's not. Very often the things that we put on a pedestal in our lives are not necessarily bad things. They're just, they're just things that can take us away from God. Our emphasis and our intentions kind of go in the wrong direction. It causes us to turn our back on God. So what is it? What is it that causes you to turn your back on God? It'd be easy for me to, to kind of list examples at this point, and, and, but for fear of finger pointing, um, I'm not going to. So just think, what in your life are you putting ahead of your relationship in Jesus? What gets in the way of developing that relationship? I'm going to give one example. I did lie, I'm sorry. Um, but it's an example that applies to everybody, okay? How often have you said, oh, I'm just so busy. How often have you said that? Correct me if I'm wrong, but we live in a society that glorifies being busy, right? Sometimes it's necessary, and that's absolutely fine. But sometimes you've got to take a step back, haven't you? And ask yourself the question, if I wasn't doing that, how much more present would I be in my relationships with my family? How much more time would I have to undertake some self-care just to simply relax and switch off? How much more opportunity 
would I have to give to God? And that's what we put on that other altar very often, is I'm doing and doing and doing. I'm apparently building all this, but I have no idea how or what's going to happen at the end of it. And we can think of that as our sacrifice, when actually we're doing harm to ourselves and need to slow down. That's a really easy altar to build out of a host of things that just keep you busy. They're good things, it's fine. But it's going to end up coming from a place of duty. We're just doing it because we have to, rather than doing it because we can have impact on people's lives, on the life of the church. The altar that's built because it has to be is not going to be a stable one. Look at new build houses. The altar that is built in anticipation of seeing God's power at work is an entirely different story. So let's go back to scripture. Let's look at the other altar that Elijah's building. We're here at verse 30. Um, to the prophets of Baal, they've had no luck, no joy getting any fire on their altar. Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. So they came to him and he prepared the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed, whatever that is. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered them, and they did it a third time, so that the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I always like reading kind of Old Testament things, particularly with Elijah. He's a little bit crazy at times, Elijah, it's fair to say. Um, but it's a great read in terms of seeing what God can do. And I wonder if you've ever been expectant of something in your life, as Elijah was expectant of the fire coming down. I wonder if you've kind of waited for big moments, milestones in your life, perhaps. It can be exciting, can't it? You know it's going to be great. And you think to yourself, I just can't wait for that. And you're sat there in anticipation. You're not settled. Now, I remember um, when Thomas was a baby, when he was small, um, we always said that we'd give him his first chocolate for his first birthday. Okay? It's going to be nice. One of those nice experiences. As, as he grows up. I remember it distinctly. We were at Chester Zoo at the time. Um, all the grandparents were with us and we get prepared with this bag of Milky Bar buttons. And um, this is first chocolate, we say. This is the big moment. And can you guess what happened? Subtly, Nana and Grandma look at each other and go, this isn't going to be his first chocolate. Because grandparents are grandparents, aren't they? 
they had both given Thomas chocolate at some point, okay? And we had been preparing for that big moment, and it's gone. Now, we still revel and go, oh, he's cute, and he? Not anymore. But life throws those curveballs, doesn't it? Where we're kind of anticipating something big, something exciting to happen. But it's not. It's just as we kind of go through that moment, um, it's just not what we thought it would be. The things that we expected to make memories, as it were. Maybe the big holidays that turn into kind of travel sickness nightmares. Uh, the meal out you've been looking forward to, ruined by hen parties on the table next to you. Maybe that lovely trip that turns into a day of dragging a screaming child around the zoo. We've all been there, if you've had small children. And I heard it said this week that if we expect big moments in everything we do, more often than not, it will end up being an anticlimax. That's life. That's what kind of earthly living is. But right here in the case of Elijah, okay, he has faith in the big moment. He knows that big moment will come. He's expectant of the power of God to come and set all of that altar ablaze. And if you want a display of God's power, boom, there it is. In that scripture, it makes it happen. So imagine you're there. In that moment, you're looking at a huge pile of wood. Okay, there's caught bits of bull and all that kind of jazz. And you believe you have faith that God will do this thing. It seems, yeah, we've got an altar. God's going to come uh, and this will happen. But wait, what? Elijah is going to pour water all over the wood that we want to burn. How, that's just not good. I mean, wet wood doesn't burn, does it? I, I've tried, I've been camping. We've tried to burn wet wood, doesn't happen. I'd, I'd say I experiment with other things to burn instead if it doesn't happen, so when I'm camping. Hand sanitizer, it glows green when you set it on fire. That's what we did, uh, yeah, COVID camping. Uh, but, but you make fires at your own risk, don't you? Um, and, and kind of here, Elijah is so confident that that fire will come, he actively makes it harder to set it on fire. The altar, traditionally, is a place of sacrifice that we bring to God. A few weeks back, um, Joel preached for us, and he talked about being prepared for, for mission, being prepared to kind of go out and share the gospel message, um, to kind of speak to people in community, for being prepared for good things to happen in our community. Uh, those things happen. We have good interactions. We show mercy on people. We act in kindness. We're loving and compassionate because we've prepared. We build relationships, we fulfill people's needs again because we've prepared for that. All the while we do it because of what we believe. We do it because we believe that Jesus came so everyone can have life in all its fullness. We do it because we want uh, people to know Jesus as a saviour, just as we do. Now, As I said earlier, we, we don't have um, godly power, as it were. But God's empowered us to minister to the world, to the communities around us. And as we do that, as a church and in our day-to-day -day lives as well, we're preparing the way for God's power. We're building that altar bit by bit. As we do one thing, there's something else added to the altar. And the altar's been built in preparation for God's power to do what it does best. Now, remember that car that slid off the uh, the dyno earlier? The power was all there. I'm sure it was. But it wasn't effective when it was unleashed because of the lack of preparation. 
I firmly believe, though, that God's power is not fully reliant on what we do. It's not going to go wrong just because of, of us. God's power will still happen, it's still come about. But you see, Jesus gave the commandment to us to go and make disciples. So we have a part to play. So we can't sit back and say, it's fine, God will do it. Jesus said to us, go and make disciples. We have an active part in God's mission in the world. We have the ability to lay the groundworks, to, to sow the seed, if you like, for God to come in and, and do the rest. And that's why we're all created uniquely in God's image and to play our different parts in that mission of disciple-making. Hannah said to the kids this morning, everybody has a bit to play in what we do. Everybody has a, a part to play, whether that's a, a big visible one that people see or maybe something small that nobody sees. We all have a part to see. To, to play in, in what we do. We can do all things through God, can't we? But he's already created us to do this stuff. We are made in God's image. We can do this in our strength. We're all gifted, whether you know it or not. There's always something we can do in, in the, the building of the altar because that's who God created you to be. But a word of warning. Let's think about that water that uh, Elijah throws on the water on, on the altar. In what way can we throw water on the altar? Now, Elijah may have done it, be, again, because he's a bit irrational. Elijah is like, yeah, throw the water on. It's going to be fine. God's power is going to come. But if we were to throw in water, uh, water on, the, on the altar before the fire comes, it's not going to make any difference to what God can do. We know that and we can, we've seen that. The scripture tells us that. But imagine if we didn't, throw the water on what difference would it make so do we throw water that because we've dismissed someone as being unworthy of God's grace have we thrown water on an altar because we've discouraged someone when they've made a mistake maybe we've thrown water when we lack compassion for someone just because their life choices don't align with the ideal maybe we've thrown water on the on the altar because We've been unhelpfully critical. Maybe, maybe we're throwing water because we believe our opinion must be heard no matter the consequences. Maybe we're throwing water on the, on the altar be, just because I don't like it. Let me tell you a story. Um, when Louisa and I were leading a church once upon a time, we decided to do something very, very different. Church, different, not always compatible. But if you've been in church for longer than five minutes, you know that, uh, that it can put people on edge when you do things different. And admittedly, we're all, we all like to be comfortable, don't we? We all like to do the same old thing. Anyway, Christmas carol service, uh, picture the scene. We get a donkey to come along. Good fun. Um, it, it didn't come by itself. It was brought. Um, we're having a nice cup of tea, a mince pie before the service begins. And in planning this little bit, it's kind of outside. Donkey, keep it outside. Trust me. Um, we thought, oh, there's not enough seating. We made a bit of an error here. And because of the number of people, good thing, we didn't have enough places for people to sit, especially those that needed to sit, well before the service. It was a simple oversight, easily remedied. But in this moment, amongst that, there were two ladies in the church who didn't normally get along. Um, sorry, not everybody gets along. It happens, we're human. But despite their um, indifferences, they put all that aside and they found themselves united in vocal criticism of me. 
Now, you can see there, I've seen the positive in that, that they are united in this moment of criticizing me. Now, they were, they were throwing water all over the place on that altar. It was getting drenched. There was, a, there was that little beauty in the fact they joined forces to do it. But you see, God's power is still going to show up. That, that criticism was audible for others to hear and slightly irritated me. But God's power is still going to come about. Imagine how much more impact, and this is why I've told you this story, imagine how much more impact if that water hadn't been thrown. Maybe somebody new to the church heard that criticism, went away not thinking the best. And while we don't have to be on guard and kind of waiting all the time for, to, just to do the right thing, sometimes we've got to take that step back. Our main aim as church is to work together to build the altar, each giving of who we are. Maybe it's in our time, but in actually who we are in relationships with people. And we do it to give glory to God and to bring to life that living hope in Jesus. We sang those words this morning, didn't we? Um, that, that he is the one who sets us free. And um, because Jesus' um, death, because of Jesus' death has lost its grip, chains have been broken, salvation in the name of Jesus, because he's our living hope. Now, that's the difference between the rest of the world that can do good things and what we're all about. We have a living hope. And whenever I question anything in my own faith and why we're doing things, it's because of that living hope. We have the power to love, the power to be compassionate, the power to encourage, and the power to inspire. But what sets us apart from everyone else is that we embody the living hope. We believe in what God can do, we believe that Jesus paid the ultimate debt and we live in the hope of eternal life. As, as a church of his people, that's what makes us powerful. doesn't matter if we're gathered in a small number or a large number. The fact that we're together, worshipping the same Lord, believing in that same hope, means that when we go to do the stuff, it's so much more powerful as a result. So today I don't really want you to go away thinking you, uh, whether you are doing enough or not. It's not all about that. It's not about appearing holy enough um, you know, to, to be contrib contributing to the big altar build, if you like. Go away and think about how real that living hope is for you. Don't just pay lip service to it. Don't just think about how nice a song it is. Are you really living in that hope? If you're not sure where you are, it's fine absolutely fine. Pray about it, get close to God, read the Bible, speak to someone, maybe listen to some kind of podcast or read something online, whatever you need to do to understand that living hope for your life. Because for me, whenever I've kind of been in that place of why am I doing this or am I doing the right thing here, come back to that basic truth of what we believe in Jesus. Everything else falls into place. The altar starts to get built without us even thinking about it ready for when God comes along into people's lives. I've always found that, that, as I say, no matter where I am in my journey, whether I'm doing on a kind of spiritual high, everything's going great, or maybe I'm a bit of a rut, it's that living hope that holds it all together. We are the powerful church because of that. So go, Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you.